Morning, everyone. You know, Mike is always so good about mentioning the birthdays in the bulletin, but he didn't mention it today because it's his birthday today. So happy birthday to my fellow announcement guy, Mike. I also have to say happy birthday to my mother, um, in case she's watching on YouTube today. Happy birthday, Mom. Um, and I noticed there was two Francis birthdays this week, so that's pretty amazing. Is it true that by the end of this week, you will have a teenage daughter in the house? Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Glad I don't have to deal with anything like that, so... Uh... Let me know how it goes so I can uh, so I can prepare. All right, we are in Matthew chapter 11 this morning, so you can open your Bibles and turn there. And uh, I just wanted to highlight, these are uh, a few of the points that Gene made last week that just stood out to me. I took down some brief notes, and these were the things that kind of stood out to me, um, where John sends his followers to Jesus and you know says are you the Christ and Jesus doesn't rebuke him for his doubts I was impressed by that um, Jesus recognized that John was in prison um, recognized the suffering that prison does to a man uh, and and that just says that Jesus um, he's someone that we can go to he can go we can go to him with our doubts and he won't rebuke us and we'll see a little bit of that um, today Spiritual birth always comes with a fight. I hadn't thought about that before. You know, the idea that physical birth comes with pain, comes with suffering. But I never really thought of that uh, happening with spiritual birth. There's a spiritual warfare that goes on. There's, there's something that someone who comes to Christ has to give up in order to come to him. There's a fight there. Um, so I appreciate Gene's uh, comment on that. And then... This thought, do you reject his purposes for you and prefer your own way? I think he that was one of his last statements that he made, and then he prayed, and I was still writing while he was praying. But do you reject God's purposes for you, and do you prefer to go your own way? And we will talk about that uh, theme as well this morning as we get into our verses. So uh, let us get in and jump into Matthew chapter 11, and we're looking at verses 20 through 30 today, and let's just read uh, the first section, which is verses 20 through 24. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. So in this first section, Jesus denounces three cities, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. And you can see Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. They're all right here up at the top of the Sea of Galilee. If you remember from last time I spoke, uh, Capernaum was the home base 
of Jesus' ministry. And when we looked at Matthew uh, chapters 8 and 9, Jesus did 10 miracles on those chapters, and five of those 10 were done in Capernaum. Bethsaida is where the feeding of the 5,000 takes place. And all three of these cities are within two or three miles of of each other. And remember that in the Gospels, we see several miracles of Jesus. Um, But what we see in Scripture is only a small sample of all of the miracles that he did while he was on earth. And so here in these three cities, Jesus has performed most of his mighty works. And these works should have led the people to recognize Jesus was the Messiah. They should have been paying attention to his message, which was to repent. But they missed the link between Jesus' works and his words. And so the leaders of these three cities reject him and the commoners reject him. Well, did they reject him with outright hostility? No. They enjoyed his signs and wonders. They enjoyed his works and his miracles. But they were indifferent to his message. This was the sin of indifference. And it's just as bad as hostility, if not worse. Our culture today is similar to the culture of Capernaum. We struggle with indifference today. How many times have we heard the word whatever? over these past few years. We live in a time and a place that can't be bothered to rub two brain cells together to think about who Jesus is and what he has done. And so this region of Galilee, the base of operations for Jesus and his disciples, the place where he did most of his miracles, rejects him with a collective big deal. And Jesus, in this section, names three Gentile cities in the Old Testament, Tyre and Sidon and Sodom. And he tells the people that the judgment of their own Jewish cities would be worse than the judgment of these Old Testament cities. These three ancient cities were destroyed by God for their idol worship and other evil practices. Tyre and Sidon were pagan Phoenician cities. Sodom especially is infamous. Even today, unbelievers know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and how they were destroyed by fire and brimstone for their wickedness. These evil Gentile cities would have had a better reaction to Jesus and his miracles if they had been performed then and there. These other cities would have mourned their sin, and repented in sackcloth and ashes. Capernaum had more light and more God-given advantages than Sodom ever had, and yet they still rejected the light of Jesus and remained in their sin. So Jesus ends his ministry in Galilee with sadness more than anger as he pronounces woes and judgments on these three cities. And what does that judgment look like? Well, Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum no longer exist today. All three cities are in ruins. These were beautiful locations with abundant water and perfect climate and lots of resources. But the cities were destroyed and never rebuilt. In fact, Bethsaida, for example, was so destroyed 
that archaeologists just recently found out where it was. Because it couldn't be found for so long, some historians thought the city was fictional. Here's another interesting tidbit. There were four prominent cities that we talked about, four prominent cities in Galilee in that day, three of them I've named. So these three up here. And yet the fourth city is Tiberias right here, which is not judged by Jesus in his word. And Tiberias still exists today. It was never destroyed. I wonder about Yakima. What will the day of judgment look like for Yakima? We're a very individualistic society, but there is something collective about the words of Jesus here. Three cities reject the message of the king and his kingdom, and he pronounces judgment on each of them. Will the people of Yakima be judged differently than the people of Selah, for example? Will we face some sort of collective judgment as a city? Will we as individuals be judged in some way based on if Yakima repents or not? If Jesus had made his home base in Yakima, would we be a Capernaum or would we be a Sodom? Would we mourn our sin against a holy God? Would we, would we be heartfelt, repentant people? Or would we be indifferent and respond with a collective shrug of our shoulders like Capernaum did? I don't know about you, but I never want to be denounced by Jesus and hear him pronounce woes on me and my city. Now, um, here's my side trail for the, for the day. This little section of scripture raises some very interesting theological questions centered around God's omniscience, his all-knowing nature and his providential overarching plan for the universe. Some very heady topics are raised here. This is really why I picked this uh, section of scripture in, the, in the, the draft, the elders draft of which sermons to take. I picked this one because of this section here. If the miracles of Jesus had been done in Tyre and Sidon and Sodom, then why didn't he do them there? And if God knew that Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum were unreceptive to the gospel, then why make his home base there and perform so many signs and wonders while he was with them? Why did he do his works in cities that wouldn't respond to him? And stepping back even further, is our eternal destiny a product of when and where we live? Would people make a different choice between repentance and rebellion if they lived in a different time and place? And why does God remain so hidden? Why aren't there miracles and signs and wonders in every city? Well, here's my attempt to briefly answer some of these questions. God loves us, and he wants us to love him in return. But love requires freedom. A person cannot be forced to love someone. So, in God's master plan, he grants people the free choice to repent of their sins or to continue in rebellion against him. God doesn't force himself on us. And it's very possible that more 
signs and wonders and miracles would not lead to more people putting their trust in Christ. Think about the Israelites who had the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night, the very embodiment of the presence of God with them around the clock, and yet they still rebelled against the Lord. Or think about the Jewish leaders who purposed to kill Jesus after he brought Lazarus back from the dead. That miracle led to rejection, not belief. Here in 21st century America, there is no evidence that more people would come to Christ if God were accomplishing very public demonstrations of his power. Instead, in his love, God has chosen to woo us, to draw us, and to plead with us through his word, and yes, to leave us with the free will to either accept his generous and gracious offer of salvation or reject it. So then, if Jesus is omniscient, then why did he base his ministry among these three cities of Galilee, knowing that they would reject him? Well, it's precisely because of that rejection that he lived there and ministered there. The rejection of Jesus by these three cities and by the Jewish leaders led to the crucifixion of the Son of God. And through his death, salvation was made available to everyone. Jesus didn't force these people to reject him. They did that by themselves. He was heartbroken over their rejection of the truth. But he used the evil of their free choices to accomplish his will and his plan. Now, given that mankind is free to accept or reject the good news, how can God accomplish his plan? Well, it's because he knows the free choices that man will make in any possible world that he could create. He could have created a world where you and I were born in different times and places and circumstances. He could have created a world where we were never born. And yet he created this world and brought Jesus into this world, knowing that the people would reject Jesus and his miracles and his message. And he did it because millions and billions of people would end up trusting in Christ and having the privilege of living with God forever. I, for one, am grateful that he created me in this time and in this place, and he gave me the opportunity to enter into a two-way, loving relationship with him. I'm sure many of you feel the same way. Okay, I'm done now with my rabbit trail, my hobby horse, my soapbox. Jesus, in this situation, I, I brought out all these things, but Jesus may actually just be using hyperbole here or a fig figure of speech here to make a point. And Matthew is trying to communicate this truth to us using this particular anecdote from the life of Jesus. And the truth is this. There are different degrees of judgment and eternal punishment for those that reject Jesus Christ. With greater light and greater privilege and greater opportunity comes greater responsibility to accept his message and a greater penalty if we reject it. The greater the revelation you've received, 
the greater the level of accountability. What judgment faces a person who knows they can walk into a church and hear the truth, but decides to stay home? What judgment faces someone who sits in church every Sunday and hears the truth week after week, but never accepts it? Those of us that have come to this chapel, who have heard the gospel plainly, preached and taught week after week, and continually reject it, will face greater judgment. You understand it, you grasp it, you get it, but you respond with indifference. And in some way, your judgment will be less bearable and less tolerable than those who rejected Christ with far less opportunity. What about you? What have you done with your clear opportunity? Have you rejected Christ? If you miss your chance and never place your trust in Jesus, you are doomed to hell forever. How deep you go depends on the chances and the opportunities that you missed. In general, what does this passage tell us about the judgment that Americans face, those who reject Christ? We have churches on every corner. We have Bibles in every home. The gospel is proclaimed all day, every day on the radio, and the truth is at our fingertips right here on your phone. You can have the word of God for free. God's word is readily available to everyone in this country. Some people even grow up with two Christian parents, and they still reject the faith. We live in the greatest country in world history with the most freedom and the gospel freely and instantly available to us. Our opportunity is greater. The light we've been given is greater. And so our accountability to God is greater. And our punishment, if we reject him, is greater. Second section here, verses 25 through 27. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son of God chooses to reveal him. So after this rejection by these cities, Jesus must have been feeling pain and heartbreak. And so he turns to his father and he has a conversation with him. And we get to listen to this intimate prayer between father and son. Notice here even the distinction between father and son. They are two separate persons. We get a a little glimpse into the Trinity here. Jesus thanks the father for hiding the comprehension of the true identity of himself from the wise and understanding. In context, the wise and understanding are the Jewish leaders of the day, and the little children are the disciples and the other true followers of Jesus. Have you ever wondered why most of the smart and rich and famous people don't believe in Christ? It's because the Father reveals himself through Christ to the ordinary and the common. Spiritual understanding isn't based on social status or intelligence 
or education or race or culture or gender. Spiritual understanding is a gift from God. Today, the wise and the understanding are those that don't think they need God. They are too wise to believe the gospel. I was thinking about our universities, almost all of them founded by believers in Christ that have been stripped of their truth, and they indoctrinate our children in the foolish philosophies of the world. They teach our young people that they can succeed in life by doing it their own way on their own terms. The little children, on the other hand, are the ones that recognize their neediness and their helplessness without God. The little children mentioned here is figurative, but maybe we should take it literally as well. The gospel is simple, and we need to accept it with childlike faith. Here at the chapel, our evangelism, our outreach, seems to be most effective with young people. God reveals himself to little children. Maybe we should continue our emphasis on children's ministry. Let's focus on them before they become jaded by the wisdom and the knowledge of this world. And I've got to make a side note here. Um, I, I make this statement as someone who is as uninvolved in children's ministry as I can be. I know so many of you are, and I stay out of it as much as I can. And in fact, I don't think I've ever been invited to share at Sunday school or junior high or high school. But this week, God, with his sense of humor, got me to share for 10 minutes at action on Wednesday night. So uh, he knew I was going to express the importance of sharing with children, something that I'm terrible at, but something that so many of you are so gifted at. And so I'm very, very grateful uh, to all of you that minister to our children because you've ministered to my children and we've been so blessed by it. So when Jesus says that everything has been handed over to him by the Father, he is declaring his divinity. He is claiming to be the one and only Son of God. He also tells us that the only way to know the Father is through himself. The Father only reveals himself to mankind through his Son. We have the opportunity and the privilege to approach God the Father and know him and have a relationship with him. But the only way to do that is through Jesus Christ. If we believe in Jesus and we place our trust in him, he gives us permission to know the Father. Okay, our last section here. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I'm sure many of you even have those verses memorized, right? So in the it, we see here a preview of the Great Commission. We see Jesus starting to turn his attention from the Jews to the whole world. His invitation is being rejected by the nation of Israel, and so he begins to make his plea to each individual. This is now a personal invitation from Jesus, which is freely available to everyone. And so we have this beautiful verse, verse uh, 28. Come to me, 
all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This verse is an invitation to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's an invitation to the unbeliever. Uh, Again, in context, it's talking about the heavy burden laid on the people of Israel by the Pharisees and the scribes. This is an invitation to the Jews that heard this to leave the legalism and the works-based efforts of the Jewish religious leaders. When we think of the burdens that we carry today, we think of the natural sorrows that come from living in a fallen world that sometimes seem impossible to bear. We think of our own evil and its rippling, all of its rippling effects, including a guilty conscience. We think of the hurts that have been done against us by our friends and our families. When you see the word labor, think of that as the burdens that we put on ourselves. And when you see heavy laden, think of these as those burdens put on us by others or by life circumstances. I think this picture has been shown before here. Are you dealing with heavy burdens that are too much to handle? Then accept this invitation from Jesus. Every single person who's ever lived besides Jesus is weary and heavy laden. But are we willing to admit that truth to ourselves? Are we willing to admit that we are incapable of dealing with the burdens of life? Turn to Jesus because he is capable. Turn to Jesus because he is the only person that can carry that burden. Find rest in him. Find rest from your guilty conscience. Don't try and take the burden off yourself before you come to Jesus. Come to him with your heavy load. You are qualified to find rest in him because you acknowledge that you cannot remove the burden yourself and only he can. Now the commentators say they agree that verse 28 is talking about salvation and that verses 29 through 30 are talking about service or discipleship. And by talking about a yoke, Jesus is going back to his carpentry days. A yoke is a wood collar made for two oxen. It's specifically designed so the lead ox would bear the greater burden. Tradition says that Jesus and his dad, Joseph, specialized in making yokes in their carpentry shop, that they made the best yokes in all of Galilee. The yoke of Jesus is the best yoke for us. It's tailor-made to fit us. He is asking us to let him be the lead ox. He's asking us to follow his lead in our lives. The yoke of Jesus is a picture of submission and obedience to him. The yoke is the training and the discipline of a follower of Jesus. Are we willing to be a disciple of Jesus? Maybe we've accepted his offer of salvation, but have we accepted his invitation to discipleship? Do our lives show a willingness to learn from Jesus more and more as the days and years go by? Set aside all your other obligations and take on the obligations of Jesus. When you are are yoked to him, 
He will direct you on where to go and place you where you should be. He has a purpose for us and will guide us into all that we've been intended to be. We've been created by him for good works. And then Jesus says this amazing phrase, for I am gentle and lowly at heart. This is Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe, all-knowing, all-powerful, the righteous judge, and he gives us a glimpse into the depths of his being. He reveals his heart to us, the core of who he truly is, and he uses the words gentle and lowly. Jesus is approachable. We can come to him and expect him to willingly receive us, no matter what our circumstances are, no matter what we've done. This Jesus offers the disciple of Christ rest for our souls. I'm a restless person. I can't think of anything I desire more than rest. What would it be like to experience rest for my soul? Is it even possible to find rest in this life? Well, Jesus offers us rest. Rest for someone who brings their burdens to Christ and lays them at his feet. And rest for someone who walks with him day by day. Jesus says we can have contentment and peace even in the middle of the trials of life. Now, you might be saying to yourself, I don't want a yoke. I don't want to be yoked to anything or to anyone. I want to be free from restrictions. I want to fight any limits on what I can do or say or be, and I want to live my own way. You know the the song, I did it my way, right? But that is a false choice. Everyone is yoked to someone or something. No one is free from a yoke. There isn't a no-yoke option for people. Everyone has a master leading them somewhere. And the yoke of pride and selfishness and evil and pleasure doesn't fit well. The yoke of sin will not lead you to rest because God created you for his pleasure and not your own. Following Jesus doesn't imply absolute freedom. His yoke is still there, and many people fear his yoke. But it's an easy yoke, a well-fitted yoke, made to fit our needs and situation. Which yoke have you chosen? Have you exchanged a hard yoke for the easy yoke of Jesus? If you are finding that your yoke isn't easy, then examine your situation. Is it really the yoke of Jesus around your neck? Jesus does place constraints on his followers, but there is freedom and purpose and meaning and happiness within those limits as we follow his lead. Jesus doesn't deny that there is a burden to following him. We often think his burden is heavy, but he says it's light. The heaviest burden is trying to satisfy yourself. You will never be satisfied by money, by fame, by power, or by the pleasures of this world. The burdens of a true disciple of Christ, they're real, but it's easier than any other burdens because we don't have to bear them alone. The burden of discipleship is much lighter than continuing under the burden of sin. 
Examine your own burdens today. Was it God who put these burdens on you or was it someone else or was it yourself? Are you letting Jesus bear your burdens with you? When we are motivated by love for Jesus and not by obligation, the load is lighter. So just four quick applications here. Do not be indifferent to Jesus. Jesus Christ, get to know him, get to understand him, examine his life, do your own research, look into the life of Jesus, and then make a decision about Jesus Christ. Don't be indifferent to him. Don't have the sin of Capernaum and just say whatever to Jesus Christ. Come to the Father through Jesus. If you want to know the God of the universe, if you want to know the creator, if you want to spend eternity with him, there is only one way, and that is through Jesus Christ. Come to the Father through Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Lay your burdens at the feet of Jesus. We all have burdens. If you don't know Christ, we we are weary, we are heavy laden. Come to Jesus Christ. He is the only one that can remove those burdens. And finally, choose only the yoke of Jesus. We don't need to be yoked to the world. We don't need to be yoked to our sinful desires. Let's choose the yoke of Jesus. It's well-fitted for us. It's made perfectly for us. It's designed for us. Let's choose to serve him with our lives. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you again for this time this morning. Thank you for the chance um, to open up your word, to have uh, the words from the life of Jesus, to have these accurate eyewitness accounts of the life of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you um, for the chance to take off our burdens and to cast them at your feet, Lord. You are the only one that can bear them, and so we are so grateful that you are willing to take those burdens off of us, Lord. We thank you for the price that you paid on the cross to take those burdens away from us, Lord. And so, Lord, if we have cast off our burdens, Lord, help us to take on the yoke of Jesus. Help us to be led by you this week ahead, Lord. Help us to live lives uh, fully for you, Lord. And so, Lord, as we uh, sing now and as we go into the world this week, help us to be faithful ambassadors for you. In Jesus' name, amen.